0: Well, this week we continue our summer series, Summer in the Parables, after kicking it off last week. And before I invite Ben up, I just thought I'd share. This week I began reading uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, which many of you will know, those of you that don't. It's a classic Christian book written in the 1600s, I believe, by a man named John Bunyan. And it's really a, a story, an allegory, a metaphor for the Christian life. And so you read about this man, Christian, as he travels through all of these obstacles and this journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And at the beginning of this work, John Bunyan offers a a kind of defense for why he chooses to to write in this way. And in this defense, defense, he says, My dark and cloudy words, they do but hold the truth as cabinets enclose the gold just as as cabinets can enclose treasure in them so john bunyan speaking in metaphors there was treasure enclosed in that in that way of speaking and even more true of jesus's parables jesus's metaphors and that's why we we are searching we're digging into them through this series and so ben please come up here and let me pray for you before we begin Ben is one of our elders, and we're so thankful for his, his service, and we're so thankful for the time that he spent preparing for this week, and we look forward to what he has to share with us. Lord, we thank you so much for Ben. We thank you for your blessing upon him. We thank you for he, him and his family. We thank you for their presence here at Hillside. And so we ask that your Spirit would be upon him as he speaks and explains and unpacks your Word to us. And Lord, we pray that we would have open hearts and minds to listen to what you have to say to us through your servant Ben. In Jesus' name, Amen.
1: Good morning. I think I'm on? Can you hear me? All right. Thank you. So today, we're going to look at the parable of the strong man. And in a moment, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 28, and Luke chapter 11, verses 21 to 22. But before we do, I would just like to read something to you from the foreword of A.W. Toza's book, Born After Midnight. To speak to God on behalf of men is probably the highest service any of us can render. The next is to speak to men in the name of God. Either is a privilege possible to us only through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. To sit for a moment in the chair of a teacher and to write or to speak that which may affect the life and the character of numerous persons is not only a lofty privilege, but it is a grave responsibility as well. Now Tozer's words really resonate with me because every time I get the opportunity to do this, I feel this sense of responsibility. And and I ask myself, if this were the last time that I were to stand up here, what would I want everyone to know? And what I would want everyone to know is Jesus Christ magnified just exalted, His grace, His wisdom, His strength, His majesty. If I could do that one thing, I think I would be satisfied. Thank you.
0: Is
1: that better? Still hear me? (laughs) Thank you, Simon. And I think the reason why is this, we cannot get from him or receive from him all that he has to offer, unless we can see very clearly that he possesses those things in an infinite measure. And that is why we need to magnify him. And I pray today that as we look at this parable that God would just give us an increased measure of his presence here and that we will be able to see Jesus more clearly, just one more aspect of him. So with that, would you please stand as we read God's word? Then they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and they said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them in parable, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, then by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God, that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the strong man trusted and divides up his plunder. You may be seated. Hmm. So let us start just by exploring the text that is in front of us today. And as we do so, let us look at the structure and the language of it. When we look at this text, granted it's not the most comfortable text, it talks about demons and all of these things, but as we look at this text, what we find is that this whole event, this whole encounter, hinges on a very, very simple word, by, by. What is under contention here is, by what power did this man who could not see regain his sight? By what power did this man who could not speak regain his speech? What the Pharisees are arguing about here is, what is the efficient cause of this supernatural manifestation? By what power? And they pose the question at the same time as they answer it. They tell Jesus, it is by Beelzebub that you are doing these things. And Jesus responds to them in parabolic and repetitive form. He talks about a house divided against itself and the city divided against itself, and the kingdom divided against itself. And he talks about the other Jews who are also doing the same thing, and then a strong man, and an even stronger man, and he's concealing and revealing and revealing and concealing at the same time, like Simon described last week. And we don't quite know what's going on, but we can tell just by the way he's repeating the same point that his argument is gaining momentum, and it ends in the climax, the kingdom of God has come upon you." And the language that Jesus uses is a language of warfare. He speaks of plunder, houses, kingdoms, dissension, invasion, and counter-invasion, and power. And this is what we can tell just by reading the words of, of this passage today in a moment we're going to start looking at the meaning of it. And I would just like to add one more point to what we learned last week. When it comes to understanding Jesus, one of the challenges that we can have is that he assumes that we are familiar with the history of God's dealings with humanity, leading up to the point where he says what he's saying. And that's not always the case. And we can be familiar with it, but if we are familiar with it only from the perspective of a Jew, like those who would have been his audience, we would actually also miss the point. Because if you asked a Jew what, you know, the strong man and the stronger man means, or a Jew at that time, they would probably have told you that, you know, this is a story about the Messiah and Israel and being liberated from the rule of the Romans and establishing this new kingdom. But that would not be the point of this particular parable. And so bear with me because we're going to cover familiar ground as we look at the meaning of Jesus's words. So let us begin. Jesus presents the serpent, Beelzebub, the prince of demons, pick whatever name is most comfortable for us. He presents this person as the strong man, someone who has plundered humanity, and holds humanity captive. And, you know, if we, if we keep with the tone of this parable, of this message, I think it's relevant that we ask, well, by what power did a strong man gain his strength in the first place? How did he gain his strength to become a strong man? And when we do this, we come across two answers, an answer that comes in two parts, rather. The first is this. It was by the power of God's command that humanity was actually able to be plundered. Able to be plundered. And here's how it, how it goes. In Genesis chapter one, when God made man, he said, fill the earth, subdue it. He gave us dominion. But then he made that dominion contingent on something. He said, on the day, that you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Humanity's dominion was contingent on obedience. And we know that Adam ate of that tree and that death entered into his nature. A very curious phrase when God made the first of everything, the firstborn of everything and he wanted them to multiply, he said that they should multiply according to their kind. According to their kind. And so we cannot get an apple from a pineapple and we cannot get a hen from a hippopotamus. Things reproduce according to their kind. That was God's command. And so when Adam ate of the fruit and death entered into his nature and it came time to reproduce, He passed death on to subsequent generations, just like God commanded, according to his kind. And so if we fast forward to first century Judea, we find a man who can't see and he can't speak. If we fast forward to today, we find all manner of corruption in human nature. On Good Friday, we talked about death and we talked about it as separation Spiritual death is man separated from God. Spiritual death is who we are on the inside separated from our our bodies. And this is a very important point, this point of according to their kind because it's going to help us as we move along here. Now at this moment, it's possible to hear someone raise their hand and say, well, just hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I was okay with you talking about, you know, devil hooves and all. I was okay with you talking about Genesis, but just hold on a minute. It's not fair that humanity should be held captive because one man couldn't hold his own. Why should I be plundered? Why should I not be whole? Why should my family and my loved ones feel the way they do or go through the things that they do because Adam could not withstand the evil one? That just just doesn't seem fair. And so, let's call God to the stand to defend himself. But before we do, could we just ask ourselves one question? Is there anyone amongst us who thinks that they would have stood where Adam fell? Is there anyone amongst us who is Fully confident that they could have carried on their shoulders the burden for all of humanity by facing that tree. Facing that evil being who is so crafty, he was able to cause a third of the host of heaven to deflect in rebellion. Imagine all of that craftiness focused on just one person. Is there anyone amongst us who really thinks that we would have stood And if there's anyone who is 100% confident, we might need a parable on pride after this one. So, if it was by the power of God's command that humanity found itself in that place where we were able to be plundered, it was actually not God's will that brought all of this about. It was actually the will of the strong man He's the one who deceived Adam, and he's the one who continues to work death to his favor. That's the armor that he wears. It's death. And you know, he takes advantage of the distance between us and God, and he bombards us with accusations. You're not worthy. God doesn't love you. What would make you think that he would bless you with that? He can't forgive you. You should be ashamed. That's what he says. It's like being in a long-distance relationship and having this person beside you constantly planting negative thoughts in your head and offering you alternatives to the one you love. That's what he he does. He offers us idols instead. And he takes advantage of the fact that there's a disconnect between who we are on the inside and who we are on the outside. We just, our inner man just doesn't seem to have as much control over our bodies. He just continues to work death to his favor. At this point though, we should be clear that this strong man does not have power in the same category as our God, not even close. But he does not need power in the category of of God in order to do what he does. So this strong man, for instance, cannot snap his fingers and wipe out an entire race of people. He doesn't have that kind of power. But what he can do is he can gradually work on the heart of an ambitious man and turn him into a dictator and then work on him some more and get that dictator to the point where he signs an edict to endorse mass genocide. That's what he can do. He can't, for example, just snap his fingers and take that restlessness of eternity that God has placed in our hearts. He can't take it away. But what he can do is provide us with enough distractions That we don't even pay any attention to that feeling. And you know, when we do, it's almost like, um, it's as insignificant as maybe having an upset stomach because we ate something we shouldn't have. Oh, is is that what that is? Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess I do feel eternity somewhere in here when I'm not on Facebook or Twitter or something. I don't know. That's what he does. He can't just declare that God no longer exists. He doesn't have that kind of power. But what he can do is that he can mount enough pain, enough suffering, enough random acts of violence in this world that millions of people will come to that conclusion on their own. Because they'll say that if there is a God who is loving and a God who is powerful, then he cannot and therefore he does not exist in a world like this. That's what he does, but the truth is, this strong man does not need power like God, because his faith, and this is the irony of all ironies here, and it's a challenge to us, his faith is in the Word of God because he believes that the first must reproduce according to its kind and therefore, because Adam died, all of humanity must be subject to death and all of humanity must be subject to him. He is the one who works death. This is his belief. Are we tracking so far? And it would seem as though he were right, that we would be forever captive to his tyranny. And it's also possible to see the foolishness of what the Pharisees were saying. Why would this strong man destroy his own works? Why would Beelzebul open the eyes of a blind man? Why would he give speech to someone? Why would he, he undo his own schemes? He would not do it. That's Jesus' point. He would not do it. Instead, he's, he stands like a lion over its prey. It's, he is confident that nobody can deliver humanity from his grasp. But 800 years before Jesus came on the scene, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words. Can that which was taken by a strong man in battle be taken back from him? Can those taken away to prison by a powerful ruler be saved? This is what the Lord says. Even those taken away by the strong man will be taken from him. Those taken by a powerful ruler will be saved because I, I will fight the one who fights with you and I will save your sons. The end of the strong man is coming. He does not know it yet. And now, we look at the stronger man in this message. And this is where things begin to get exciting. To get us thinking about Jesus, because he presents himself to us as the stronger man. To get us thinking about him, I would like to share a story with you. I used to carpool with my neighbor, who was a manager at a Volkswagen dealership. And he said that when he started there, they made him test drive all of these Volkswagen cars so he could get a feel for the brand. And at some point, the whole thing just became tedious. He got tired of it. So he was only half listening when this person told him to go easy on the accelerator of this Golf. And he thought to himself, it's a Golf. How, you know, what could go wrong here? (laughs) So he gets in and he steps on the accelerator and boom. The car was gone. It was a beast on the road. And what this neighbor didn't know is, is this. There are different kinds of golf, actually. I didn't know that either. There's your regular golf for regular people. There's your e-golf for the eco-conscious people. And then there's the GTI, which those who have paid the money to buy it will tell you is not a golf. And then there's the Golf R which is a high-performance vehicle. You can hear it growling from the start of the street. And my friend was in a Golf R, and when he stepped on the gas, he said that he felt like his stomach was glued to his back. And the words that came out of him, they're just too unholy to repeat in a place like this. And, and it was such a funny story. So forgive the crude analogy, but Jesus comes to us like a golf R. He looks like a regular man on the outside. In fact, he looks less attractive than a number of men. But when he moves, he's firing on 12,000 cylinders. When he moves, we know he's so much more than an ordinary man. When he reaches out to humanity in compassion, he drives away our sicknesses and our affliction. When we take a hold of him, even if it's just the edge of his robe in faith, the same thing happens to us. When he speaks, his words are just terrifyingly powerful. They are terrifyingly powerful. With his words, he just calms the winds and the waves, just like that. With his words, he can suck the life right out of a tree. He can reach across the chasm of death and he can grab a man right out of the grave with his words. And when he speaks, when he declares his true identity, when he says, I am, soldiers fall to the ground. What manner of man is this? What manner of man is this? If we're to keep with the tone of today's text, how is it that Jesus is not subject to death in the same way as everyone else is? How is it that he is able to destroy the works of the strong man? How can he be stronger if he is just a man? It's the exact same formula as how the strong man gained his strength. Exact same. When Jesus was born, we're told that the breath of God breathed upon Mary the same way the breath of God breathed upon Adam. Exact same. But when we meet Jesus for the first time, when we get the hint of him, God describes him as the seed of the woman. And it's a very interesting term because we actually don't know what it means. But what we know is that it suggests, suggests continuity and discontinuity at the same time. He's called the seed of the woman, so we know he's going to be human. The woman is human, so he's going to be human. But he's also called the seed of the woman, not the son of Adam which would have been typical when Moses was writing the book of Genesis. He he calls him the seed of the woman. So we know there's something about him that will not be the same as Adam. But we don't understand what this means at all. This is the third book of Genesis until we meet Jesus and then we see what the, the theologians, they had to come up with a new name for it. They call it a hypostatic union of divinity with humanity. For the first time, we see what it actually means for somebody to be God and to be man at the same time. And Jesus is fully human. He was fully human. We know that he wept, he ate, his heart was troubled. We know that um, he slept, and we know that he could experience death. He was fully human. But there was no spiritual death in him. That's the difference. There was no separation between him and God. And because of this, because he continued to submit to to the will of the Father, the Holy Spirit was always with him. And that's why we could find dominion just coming out of him. That's why he could do the things that he did. It is okay, it is well, it is good that Jesus was able to do these fantastic things 2,000 years ago. And that's wonderful. But if we may be honest, what does that do for us today? How can this one man save all of humanity? How can one person bring an entire kingdom that will last forever into the world how is that even possible and how can he even claim that he can do that this is really the question that Jesus wants us to ask when he's putting forward this parable but the Pharisees just can't get past the question of whose power is he using to do these things Jesus is saying the kingdom of God has come upon you they're saying well by whose power you've done these things and you can tell that he's trying to to just move the conversation up to a higher climax. He wants somebody to ask him, How are you bringing the kingdom of God upon the earth? But nobody does. But he is bringing this kingdom the exact same way that Adam led humanity into captivity. It's the exact same. This firstborn, this new creation, this first of his kind, this Jesus, he will reproduce according to his kind. That's how the kingdom of God will come. If this were the only text that we had on this topic, we would be lost. But thank God that there's actually another encounter where this happens and Jesus gets the opportunity to actually tell us what he was trying to get at. It is his encounter with Nicodemus. Let's read it. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God because no one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Can you see that? One set of Pharisees see him healing someone and they say he is possessed by the devil. Another set of Pharisees see the same signs and he says, God is with you. And this speaks to what Simon was saying last week, depending on the state of a person's heart, they will look at the same evidence and come to a completely different conclusion. Nicodemus comes to the conclusion that Jesus could not be doing the things he is doing unless God were with him. Now listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Did he even hear what Nicodemus said? It's like Nicodemus says one thing, Jesus just goes off in a different direction. But this is what he was trying to get at when he told the other Pharisees, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he stopped there. In this case, because the person enters into the invitation, into the parable, Jesus just continues explaining what, exactly what he was talking about, the kingdom of God you can't see this kingdom unless you're born again. He picks up the conversation. Poor Nicodemus, um, I guess it, you know, he took a moment to get his bearing and then he said, well, how can someone be born again when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Remember, we're talking about how this kingdom is going to come and is going to be the first reproducing according to his kind. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The first Adam gave birth to people like the first Adam. They were captive to death like him. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. The second Adam, I, Jesus Christ, I give birth to new spirits. This is how he is bringing that kingdom and breaking the power of the strong man. I give birth to new spirits. You should not be surprised at my saying, why does this surprise you, Jesus says? God did not consult you when he decided how flesh is going to be reproduced. Why should he consult you when he decides how spirit is going to be reproduced? Why are you surprised that I say you must be born again? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. It is God's prerogative to decide how spirit will be reproduced. And so Jesus concludes, so it is with everyone born of the spirit. I saw, I'm so with Nicodemus right now. How can this be? How is this possible? This is the mystery. This is that secret that he's trying to unveil to us. But the first time, people didn't quite get it. But when he finds someone who enters into the, his invitation, he, he continues to expand on it. Jesus says to him, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? you don't understand just this basic parts about Christian faith? about man reproducing according to their kind just a basic law that God gave? do you not understand? well let me explain a little bit more to you the same way that Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? Again, so he can reproduce. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. (coughs) So that you and I and all of humanity, everyone who was ever subject to death, Instead of running away from it, we will pass through it by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we will be born again. That's the secret. So if someone were to ask us, when we gave our lives to Jesus, what did we get back in return? We would say eternal life. That's what we got back. But what is this eternal life? What is this thing that we got when we were born anew? This is eternal life, Jesus Christ says. Now it makes sense. This is eternal life, that we would know God. Remember death was separation? Eternal life is fellowship with God. We would know God the only true God and Jesus Christ who he sent. There's no more distance between us and God. The power of death is broken. Each one of us has been born according to Jesus' kind. Dorothy says, says it, puts it really well. When she looked at all of this, she said, whatever game God was playing with his creation, Jesus Christ showed that he was man enough to play by his own rules. God didn't change the rules. He used the exact same rules to set humanity free. It's a bit dense, but it's true. And I would like to end today just by looking at the man earlier in the story, the one who couldn't see and who couldn't speak. And I find him so interesting because he is a metaphor for all of us. And as we look at him, I wonder, was this man born this way? Was he born blind? Was he born mute? Or did he experience the terror of watching his own faculties degenerate? Was he married? Did he have children? How did he even get to the place where Jesus was? Did he have friends, faithful friends, like that other man we read about who carried him to Jesus? How did he get there? To help us understand this man's position, let us just take a step back for a minute here. When Jesus healed that man who was born blind in the temple, the the Pharisees asked the man to go call his parents because they didn't believe it. And they started interrogating the man, and they were interrogating his parents. And the the man said these words. He says, Since the creation of the world, never has it been said that one who was born blind had their sight restored. Ever. There's no such thing recorded in the Old Testament. When Jesus healed a man who could not speak, the Bible says, All of Israel was amazed. All of Israel. It's a different category of miracles. Imagine if we were this man in this story, knowing that what we need from God, he has never given to anyone before. Can you imagine needing something from God that his word does not record he has ever given to anyone Would we even have the faith to pray? Would we even dare to hope that he would do it? And then imagine hearing that someone, somewhere, had their sight restored for the first time in the history of the world. And then imagine hearing that someone, somewhere, had their speech restored. Can you imagine the state of this man's heart? He's thinking to himself, I wonder, I just wonder if what God has done for one person somewhere, if he would do again, this time for me. I wonder if what God has done for somebody else, if he would do again, this time for you, will he do it again? I wonder when that man woke up that morning, did he know that he was going to encounter the King of Glory? Just imagine that. I wonder, when we woke up this morning and we came into his sanctuary, did we expect that we would encounter the King of glory? The one who causes the deaf to hear and the blind to see and the mute to speak. And we come here today with all sorts of challenges. We may not be blind, we may not be mute, but we have sins that simply refuse to let us go. We have fears that just continue to pursue us. We have burdens that we've been carrying for years. Prayers that seem as though God is not gonna answer them. And Jesus stands right here in the middle of all of us. And he says to each one of us what he said on that day, I am stronger. That's what he says. He does not change his position. He says, I am the stronger man. That's what he says today. And far be it from us as his church to call him a liar. Far be it from us to say less about our Lord and our Savior than he says of himself. So this morning, I would just like to invite us to honor him with our faith. Let us honor him with our hope. Let us honor him with our expectation. Let us say of him what he has already said of himself. Lord, you are stronger. You are stronger. Lord, you are stronger still. would like to invite the worship team back up. And as they set up, let us please rise as we close in prayer. Lord, we have heard of your fame. And now we stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them, Lord, in our day, in our time, Jesus, make them known. In your justice, remember mercy. We pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ, amen. refreshments at the back and there'll be prayer at the front if you need prayer but please remain standing for this benediction Hmm. this is from John when he finally got to see Jesus's strength. he said when I saw him I fell at his feet as though I were dead But he placed his right hand on me and he said to me fear not I am the first and the last I am he who lives even though I was dead and behold I am alive forevermore amen and I have the keys of hell and of death. May God grant you the grace to see Jesus Christ as he truly is, exalted and lifted high above everything. And when you have seen him, may he enable you to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In his name we pray, amen.